You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, what news, articles, and market moves caught our attention, and of course, where we also attempt to answer your questions. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. We appreciate you taking time out to spend with us, and we aim to do our best to make it worth your while. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Good morning, Jerry. Good afternoon, Niels. How are you guys? Oh, doing well. Good morning. Good afternoon. Absolutely. Let me sort of quickly talk a little bit about some some of the things that caught my uh, eye this uh, week. I mean, of course, we had another busy week, really, just after a series of of tweets that kind of began with a bit of rage against the Fed chair. Uh, Powell, um, but then it was combined with news from China that plans to add uh, tariffs on additional U.S. goods, uh, and of course that was uh, a response from President Trump uh, the same day that now the U.S. will hike tariffs on most imports from China as this trade war with Beijing escalates. And I think he also quote unquote ordered U.S. companies to find alternatives to China now. All of this resulted in a bit of a U-turn for stocks and bonds, sending stocks down a couple of percent for the week. And the U.S. 10-year bond now only 16 basis points from its uh, 2016 low in yield. Um, Energy markets, uh, I guess, came under pressure from these uh, escalations uh, and gold made a new fresh five-year high uh, around 1526 an ounce. And we also saw a little bit of a lift in the uh, volatility index. So there seems to be quite a lot to talk about on this weekend's G7 summit uh, in France, where I uh, I found out that to uh, protect these seven leaders, there's going to be about 13,000 police officers. So you wouldn't think, it doesn't seem like they're very welcome uh, down there. <laughs> but with all of that in mind, Moritz, your sharp views and experiences from the world of trend trading this week how was that <laughs> interesting well you know as you know i'm on vacation so i'm just letting time fly by and i'm done following the markets that closely but the portfolio has been marginally up this week um and looking back just from a macro perspective i think monday tuesday wednesday really there hasn't been that much movement in my portfolio i mean you know a bit of an uptick here a bit of a downtick there but everybody seems to be um, a weight of the Fed announcements. And then on Thursday, actually had a um, more than one and a half percent loss because bonds were selling off. And, you know, as listeners probably know, we're all along the bonds at that point in time. And then that loss was, you know, all made back um, yesterday on Friday. So that, you know, like I say, it's a marginally positive week, uh, but kind of like range bound markets uh, with the exception of, of Thursday and Friday. But it didn't have a lot of a lot of interesting moves, really, to be honest. No, I mean, I agree. I also struggled to find anything particularly interesting uh, about the week uh, as such. We were down, uh, you know, half a percent or so on the week. Nothing major, still pretty strong month for us uh, in August. Pretty strong year for sure. 
for 2019. Um, but when I kind of look at the portfolio, it really was a bit of a mixed bag in terms of performance drivers. Uh, the weakness in the dollar, especially against the British pound, uh, was uh, kind of the biggest loser. Uh, within the portfolio this week, uh, followed by Euribor and, and the Euro. Uh, and we made the most money uh, for the week really in Australian stocks, uh, in cotton and gold, of course. And sector-wise, uh, as you said, you know, fixed income. Uh, and for us also, currencies were not doing so well. Um, but then all the commodities were really doing uh, just fine. So uh, all in all, really small movements on our side. No change uh, in, in the themes, uh, as you alluded to. Um, and uh, yeah, still still a healthy uh, trend following year so so far. What about uh, what about you, Jerry? Uh, and and of course, as we always like to ask specifically about our things that we don't trade, such as the single stocks, maybe even Bitcoin. I don't know. We haven't heard about your Bitcoin trades recently, so maybe there's some action there. Bitcoin's pretty quiet. It's trying to stay up close to the highs. Um, doesn't seem to be. I can't see that it's correlated to. The market stocks going up or down or gold so it's kind of we'll see it's active over the weekends in asia so it tends to move a lot over the weekend so we'll see what happens today but it's hanging in there not not going down i guess but uh yeah enjoyed those uh big moves in gold and silver uh platinum kind of sitting there i think the dollar still looks pretty good i'm happy that i'm short some uh like a day like yesterday where the dollar went down but it had a good day against Brazil, South Africa. Israel is hanging in there, Turkey. So I have a mixed bag with the emerging currencies and the traditional currencies, but they're all near their max, you know, moves. So it's nothing to get too excited about. It's sort of earnings seasons, I guess, over here. And uh, we had a big up move uh, in, one of, in our long target. It's a big, you know, company over here. So we... Had a big, huge monster move in Target, <clears throat> so it's kind of funny to, you know, watch these stocks behave differently. And uh, I think it's you know it's important to have a sort of a fixed universe and not change out things too much. So because you can always find some longs or always find some shorts, and I've done things like that before, and it's been really bad. So in my little fixed universe of equities, which are all sort of names you've probably heard of. It's just not that committed. You know, even if we went back to new highs in the S&P, I'm probably, you know, just a, a small long. So it's really fun to sort of see the longs, the shorts, the flats, and uh, what's really going on underneath the market uh, versus the, the, the S&P or the indexes. Speaking about exciting things and what is going on, you know, beneath the S&P, do you trade GE by the, by any chance? No, but it's been a great uh, short, and and I will, and I follow it. You know, I have I do have a list of stocks that I like to follow: uh, AT and T, GE, Facebook. You know, things like that that are kind of in the news. And uh, but it's been a horrible, uh, wonderful short, of course. Yeah. No, absolutely. Now, before we jump into Jerry's top tweets, we've got this new feature that we're very excited about. Because last week, we uh, sent out a challenge to our uh, friend, listener, Sam. Um, and he took up 
our challenge and left us our first voicemail, which uh, I will, uh, which I'll play right now. Challenge accepted, gentlemen. Sam here from a warm, sunny Wednesday evening in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been a fan of the show for about two years now, even though Niels has mistakenly given me more praise in the past that I may have been one of the first listeners of the podcast. That isn't quite true. It's been two years, but I have listened to all the content over what has been five to six years. And given that, I would encourage all of the listeners, both new and old, to listen to all of the content that this podcast has produced going back to the beginning. Whether it be the two-part interviews with all of the managers that started the podcast, the roundtables with other industry professionals, and this show, which congratulations slightly early on what will be a one-year anniversary in, I believe, three weeks. So thank you for that. I can say that this podcast stands out among all of the other content, whether podcast or books or other type of print, both on systematic trading and investing, as well as trend following specifically. It is the premier source, in my opinion, that all of us should be consuming for what is honest, transparent, reliable, and applicable content. On that, have a good evening. I look forward to listening to you guys again after this weekend when episode 50 is posted. Hashtag happy trading. Love your system. Follow the rules. You can't do any better. And if you also want to leave us uh, a message uh, like Sam that we can share on air, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. Uh, we would love to hear from you and, and to you, Sam. Thanks so much for your uh, for your kind words and uh, and support. Now, Jerry, um, it may have seemed like a quiet week uh, when we were reviewing the markets, but that may not mean that it was a quiet week in Twitter land, FinTwit land. Um, how, was, how was your week when it comes to news, articles, great comments, anything like that? I mean, I liked them. I thought I did a great job this week. It's all fun, you know. Um, some of the traditional sources that I really, really like, Morgan Housel and Mark um, posted some great stuff, I think, that fits in with things I'd like to hear about and things I believe in. So they're going to get a lot of the airtime on our podcast. Um, Sam is certainly the number one place is the biggest encourager for me and for our podcast. So I'm looking forward to meeting Sam one of these days. I, you know, I think even though um, there's probably nothing more complex than what we do is trying to navigate the world of investments, especially when we want to mix in currencies, commodities, and with the stocks and the bonds and shorts, uh, we I don't think there's anything more complex than trying to just understand what's going on. It seems to be almost impossible and I think it's kind of impossible but so I guess that draws me and us to um, confirming our belief that even in something so so complex as the markets and the economies that a simpler way of following these and making money is to follow the trends 
And so Morgan Housel had a tweet, uh, an article this week that talked about how evolution um, has figured out its version of simplification. Uh, get all of the useless crap out of the way. Just give me the few things I need and make them really effective. The question then is why complexity sells in the modern world. Um, simplicity is the hallmark of truth, but complexity continues to have a morbid attraction. The sore truth is that complexity sells better. And then we'll get into some other tweets that I was just having with this friend of mine here, my friend Mike, not from New York, but Mike from uh, Florida. And uh, he and I were debating, he likes to debate, and um, I was like in the middle of these tweets, uh, text messages saying, hey, can I post these on Twitter? <laughs> they were kind of that good. And they got a, a, a lot of good response. And it was basically, um, you know, if you, the cynicism of we don't want to be too forthright about how we trade the markets, backtesting and uh, trends, and why am I going to pay you two and 20 or one and 20 or whatever, anything uh, in 20 if all you're doing is just putting these orders in. And so uh, <clears throat> that's certainly been one of my regrets over the years is maybe I was too transparent and I'm just following these trends. Don't you just love this? Don't you like want to pay me two and 20? They're like, no, you're not doing a lot of work. Work seems to be part of it. How much trouble is this? Are you taking doing this? And uh, so I think it's, you know, both ideas. I love the simplicity, and I think the better I've gotten over the years, after 35 years of trading, it is uh, really refined down to some just the essentials. And then it's hard to sell if trend following is kind of hard to sell sometimes. Yeah, I mean, complexity is definitely something that uh, we come across a lot where sometimes our our way of trying to explain what we do in a simple way doesn't, as you rightly say, it doesn't, it doesn't sell so well, and um, it kind of ties in with a uh, another podcast recording I did this week, which I may refer to later on as well with uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who has written a book called The Behavioral Investor, which I highly recommend. Um, and in the book, he talks about certain simpler things that people just didn't believe would work. And I think one of the examples he gave was that that, that it was discovered that the way to cure scurvy was simply to get vitamin C. But that the whole uh, community of scientists kind of dismissed that as being, oh, that, that's just too simple. So in fact, millions of people died before they realized that, no, I mean, it really was that simple. That's how you cure the disease. So um, so there is this, um, we, we definitely have this fetish for complexity as human beings. Um, and, um, and then the other thing that, you know, I guess we also um, struggle with as, as humans, uh, which is why we're really not designed to become great investors, um, is that a lot of things comes counterintuitive to us. And uh, when I think of, 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 of what we do and, and, and things like that, I mean, just the mere fact that we make money from buying high and selling low, I mean, that in itself is completely counterintuitive to most people because they've all been taught that it's about buying low and selling high. <laughs> so here we come and say, no, 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 no. You should buy high and you should sell low and that's much better. 
it's kind of an uphill battle from day one when you go out there and you try to uh, promote uh, what we do as trend followers. But anyway, so I I think that's a uh, you know very important point that uh, that you and and Morgan was tweeting about this week. What about you, uh, Moritz? Yeah, we're we're back to Occam's razor with that one, right? I think we're we deserve the fees, um, the the anything in twenty or whatever the fees are. Um, for staying as simple as we can, but not getting simpler, as simple as necessary, but not more. And I think this is this is a huge part of where the edge is, is that we're not overcomplicating things. We're not telling the story. We know that from a marketing perspective, right? I mean, I sometimes when you, you know, picture yourself being in front of a client and instead of what you just said, Niels, is, you know, describing we're buying high, we're selling low, or we're buying high to sell higher, you know, those type of things, they sound so counterintuitive and kind of like, well, really, this strategy works. We know it works, but it doesn't sell that well because it doesn't sound so nice, right? And if instead, you know, we looked at our portfolios of, I don't know, 70 or whatever markets that you trade, and you just fabricate a story for every position that you have, right? You say, well, I'm long the the dollar because of, you know, some macro political blah, blah, blah. And I'm long that stock because of, I don't know, some value trade, which I figured out doing fundamental analysis for the past two months. All of that stuff, I think, would resonate so much you know, more with clients and they go, well, that's interesting. He's a real smart guy. You know, those guys are doing their homework. That's why they have those positions on. But as you know, the truth of the matter is that's not what we do. We just, you know, look at the price and we follow if we can find a trend in it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, there's just no way that that we're going to bend and become storytellers just for the sake of it. You know, our purpose and that's what we said repeatedly is to, you know, stay and be transparent about the way that we trade to the extent that we can make the system understandable, explainable, you know, explain the benefits, but also, you know, the downsides that sometimes there are drawdowns, not sometimes regularly there are drawdowns and that you have to, to go with that. But it's like you say, it's the constant uphill battle um, for the way we trade. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to maybe uh, just add something to that. Uh, just a short quote uh, I found uh, in uh, in uh, Dr. Crosby's uh, book, um, and it's it, it's 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 on a topic about you know ego and how we also that's the other thing that is really hard to to deal with as investors our own ego. Um, and he goes on to to he writes something like, "If this time is different, is the most expensive phrase in investing. I would like to nominate." I don't know as the most overlooked phrase in investing with I was wrong as a close second. As is so often the case, the usefulness of these beliefs in an investment context is directly, uh, is directly proportionate to their behavioral difficulty. Acceptance of uncertainty and a belief in personal fallibility are remunerated precisely because they are so hard uh, to humankind. It is strange to consider that many of the most ex effective tactics in investing have I don't know at their core. Passive investing, and then I said to him, I would add trend following, is the embodiment of I don't know investing. And I think that sums it up pretty it. well. I don't know what that means. I don't know what uh, it's it's different this time. I hear that a lot, and I, and I, I think I don't agree with that. I think it is always different. So what do they mean when they say, this is a bad thing to say. This time it's different. 
I think it's because they always come up as an for with that as an excuse for why, um, you know, they should keep on holding on to their beliefs. Right, this time is different. So yeah, the you know PE ratios can go to forty, and that makes no difference. Right, this time is different. Remember that it came, I think, for the first time really around the tech bubble when when you 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 could. You could have companies with with no earnings and 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 big losses, and yet we still drove the prices up. And people were saying, "Oh, sure," but this time it's different. I think that's what they mean. Yeah, and I think it it's it is always different. I think this time it is different, and I think that's what trend followers believe. This time it is different. Um, this puts us in trades that are unlikely and crazy, and negative interest rate trades and. Uh, shorting crude at 90 to watch it go down to 20. I mean, you know, it never goes down that much. So buy it at 40 and 50. Because, uh, but, but I think from my point of view, it is always different except the breakout. You know, the breakout, you buy the breakout, you sell the breakout, you follow your system. Uh, that never changes. But the fundamentals, this is the whole point. The world is crazy. We're profiting off of things that have never happened before that are unlikely to occur. So I think I've tweeted many times that it's always different. Every single breakout's different. Um, and this is the, pro- the problem with their analysis is they're relying upon some sort of fundamental analysis based on patterns. And that's why you have people who get dedicated to value and it doesn't work for such a long time because these ratios and PEs and things that value, make up value historically uh, with a very limited sample size, they get blown out of the water would crazy things happen like the Fed and negative rates? No, I think that's true, Jerry. I mean, I think in, in our case, the the way, because we, we our, at, at our core, we have this, you know, knowing what you don't know as, as kind of a philosophy. I think you're right. I think that we can view it as saying, well, it doesn't really matter if it is different or not. It's always different. I think that's a fair point. I think that he writes about it more in the context of the kind of quote-unquote traditional, as you say, fundamental investor where, you know, they might end up in 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 weird positions uh, at extreme levels because they, you know, make themselves believe that it's okay. I mean, negative interest rates can go on forever, or you know, no earnings doesn't mean anything. But you can still drive up the price of of stocks. But I think that's a fair point. Moritz, you were about to weigh in. Yeah, you know, I I agree with Jerry also, but I think you know people say that because they want to support their own you know, believe in a position that they hold, like, you know, right now, equity markets, they feel like they may be at a high, right? So you say this time is different, because you want to continue holding them, maybe in the absence of factual information that you know, you have, but it's kind of like this, you know, finding an excuse to hold on to a position that you have on, in light of maybe, you know, data speaking against it. But yeah, it's always different. I mean, markets are just always different. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're saying all the time. And what I wanted to say earlier is, you know, I have so much respect for people that give an answer that is, I don't know. In fact, you know, when we interview people or I interview people who want to work at, at the firm that I work for or, you know, other firms and, you know, you ask them questions, you engage in a conversation and you get them to a point where you specifically and very concretely ask them about something. And if they reply, I don't know, to me, this is an A plus answer. The I don't know answer is so undervalued, but it's so valuable to, you know, be be okay with not knowing being being okay with uncertainty and not making up an argument and forming an opinion of beliefs and just engaging in a conversation which then turns out to be blah 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 of course you know people 
all our human beings, you know, we like to tell stories. This is how we engage in conversation. I mean, it would be absolutely awkward to be at a cocktail party, do small talk, and everybody says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But I mean, honestly, you know, sometimes when I reflect back on the day, most of the things I don't know. I mean, 95% of the time I could just say, you know what, I don't know. I can have an opinion, a hunch. I think this may be true, but really, I don't know. Right. And, and we as humans don't do that. And I think it is it is so undervalued and people, you know, regard it and they give it a, a bad spin. If you're the guy that responds, I don't know, it comes across as well, you know, maybe he or she is stupid. He just doesn't know anything, you know, and, and, and this is not what we as humans want, want to portray ourselves as. So you, you come up with something that is just an opinion. And so when you, you know, circle this back to trading, I think this is where, you know, we stand steadfast in our approach because our systems, they don't have an opinion on anything. You know, we have sample size. We don't, we don't know. We just, you know, play the odds. But it's kind of like that same thing. You know, the system knows that it doesn't know. It just goes along and it doesn't, you know, get conflicted in some sort of opinion contest. And it, it, this is this is one of the things. I mean, through my entire life, and it continues to the present day. It, I see this over and over and over again. People forming opinions, mentioning them, but really, if you then if you drill them down, right? I mean, this this then becomes awkward, and you don't want to be like offending people, right? But if you if you continue to ask why they think, why do you think this is why 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 why? At some point, they stop and they can't they can't give you the real answer, and that's when you know that they don't know, and that's when they know that they don't know. But if you you know bring them to the point at the cocktail party then you're kind of like the outlawed guy and you'll never be invited back yeah i think uh <clears throat> no one wants to allocate to to people who don't know and that's their best answer and i'm not and i'm totally in favor you know of having a story you know i think i'm not against necessarily uh because i did the opposite i never had a story and i stood on the mountaintop and said i don't have a story and so uh, I'll say one thing. I think a lot of these really large managers, they use trend following and they have a story as well. And that's their story. And they do not have a trend following story. So from a business point of view, I think I'm not against necessarily doing it the opposite of the way that I did it. It seems to work out better if you do have a story, even if you, I don't think you should rely on that story, but you should rely upon the trends. And I think not knowing is good. It reminds me of a story I've told many times about, uh, having an opinion and then someone saying, so you're short the S&P? I'm like, God, no, I'm long. It's in a big uptrend. So it's okay not to know, but then to say, but I am long the bonds. You don't know, but you're long the bonds with those massive profits. Yeah, because I don't need to know why or I didn't know that it was going to be a great trade. The most important decision of the year is did you allocate to the bonds? Did you have a permanent allocation regardless of well, you know, they're all, they're all high. They're all sort of expensive. That was out a lot this week from AQR. Bonds are freaking expensive. I don't even know what that means, but I guess negative rates, you know, kind of, kind of could be turned into something that's expensive. But did you, did you allocate? Did you do the trade? And have you done nothing since then, <clears throat> since the beginning of the year when you put the trade on? I mean, there, there's your genius. There's your, uh, I do know that. That's just, that is what I do know is that, I need to follow that system and just kind of close my eyes when it doesn't make a lot of sense because they could be juicy trades when they don't make a lot of sense. 
I love it when you say you don't have a story. I think you have one of the best stories in the world, certainly in our space. You know, the turtle story is, uh, you know, doesn't come much better than that, Jerry. So uh, there we are. Um, I like the point. I mean, I can see it at the, at the cocktail party saying, well, it's so crazy to own bonds at negative rates, right? And who in their right mind would ever do this? And uh, and then they say, well, so you must be short and you're not touching them. And they say, no, I'm fully long. Like, <laughs> I've, That's right. I've bet the range on it. <laughs> exactly. I'm fully long and I'm very happy. And, uh, and that has to be the second part. I don't know, but I'm making a lot of money. And then that is, you'll be the center of attention for that cocktail party. Exactly. Free drinks. Another one kind of following up, and this is like right in the trend following wheelhouse. Uh, We are not in a normal world, nor is it likely to become normal in the near future. Investors have to accept continuing irrationality and be bond buyers or potentially miss what could be a great fixed fixed income opportunity. It's from Mark. Um, He's a... I mean, he's a very reliable source. He writes a lot of great things on his blog. I can't pronounce his last name, but I would if I could. But yeah, I don't think the world can ever be trusted to be normal. The markets are never normal. It's always irrational. It's always going to be somewhat of a surprise. You're going to get these great opportunities just by following these trends. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, um, Moritz? Obviously, it ties in with the, the previous one, right? Yeah, I mean, fully agree. I, I don't think there's there's much that I can add to that. That's just a good summary of uh, of market behavior. I mean, they are never normal, and we just try to find the bits uh, in that distribution which have trends and then follow that. Another thing that I've noticed over the years, especially on Twitter, is that um, the people who are the most committed to indexing or um, trend following, they frequently tweet about the merits of being counter-trend in the stock market. So the people who would advocate just buy and hold with passive indexes are always uh, tweeting something about the market's going to crash. I mean, I I don't get that. And the trend followers as well, which I can kind of see because they have a uh, a bad idea of we tend to make money when stocks go down. I am long stocks. It is a trend. I cannot close my eyes that it is the stocks. So I must kind of badmouth or hope that this trend is going to reverse, even though I'm a trend follower. And this one guy uh, tweeted, uh, my favorite is that you get 80 likes on bullish tweets and 400 on bearish ones. And I commented, and they professed to just be following the trends. And all of their other tweets, they're just, I'm just following the trends. But they seem to be very happy. I mean, can you imagine like a tweet about palladium or emissions or gold? Uh, I'm really rooting against my own position that it goes down. No, of course not. <clears throat> but there's just some tendency to turn your back on your true belief when it comes to the stock market. We, stocks are so crazy. That what we've been fed a lifetime about the stock market is usually so counter to what we do and all the what we feel in all the other markets. Yeah, I mean, very true. I'm not sure I can add a lot to uh, to that. It's it's how it's how it's always been, so to speak. Um, and and maybe that's the consistency, right? And and maybe this is the whole point, as as you mentioned before. These things, you know, it's this is how it's always been. So it goes back to the point: Why does trend following work? Well, because what we do is we explore 
kind of the weaknesses of of human beings and human beings and 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 human behavior is very unlikely to change uh in any meaningful way um and 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 that's what we continue to um benefit from so to speak um yeah my favorite uh or most popular tweet of the week um was this uh expecting stock trend following to outperform in a bull market and protect in a bear market is like thinking you can stop paying the house insurance but still get a payoff when disaster strikes there's a cost to trend following and the drawdown graph shows it's worth paying and of course we know that that's true in all the different markets um, <clears throat> buy and hold you know we're getting out at the lows we're getting in at the highs uh, and sometimes we just get whipsawed all around especially in the stock market these crashes have a tendency the past few times to reverse as soon as we get out of all of our longs and maybe even go short and then so that's kind of the cost of where the market continues to go high higher for many many years and we're trading individual names and getting out and having to get back in and this is sort of the cost of um, i've read articles over the years of these animals that um just get a little whiff of danger and they scurry. They have these uh, ways of feeling that danger is coming and 90% of the time there is no danger. And so it's a total overreaction, but they survive and they live. Uh, and this is kind of what we do. We are taking our small loss or reversing positions or getting out and going flat and the market goes right back to the highs. We have to put the trade right back on. And this little, we felt this little, our system told us, hey, now's the time. Yeah, it wasn't. Nothing really happened. So I think survival is paramount uh, for people who use trend and uh, diversify into things other than stocks and do shorts. Uh, but there is you know, a premium to be paid and there's a cost to be paid. But even though we win in the end, it is a not, uh, we make more money by following these trends and being more diversified. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned this cost of of uh, of you know of being in business. Meaning, you know, if you invest with a trend follower, there is definitely going to be uh, periods of time where it's going to cost you money. But it doesn't mean that you should, as to put it in in the analogy you mentioned, shouldn't mean you drop your insurance uh, just because it costs you money because one day you're going to claim on it. Um, but it reminds me of of sort of conversations or discussions that I've had over the years, not so much recently, but but there's been a lot of people who would always counter that and say, well, you know, I could just buy puts, right? And it's just continue to buy puts every year. And, and, you know, that's kind of the same thing. And and I'm saying, you know, no, it's not the same thing. First of all, I think there is a fund that actually tracks what happens if you buy, uh, you know, like 5% out of the money puts uh, on a continued basis. And, and that fund alone uh, significantly underperforms uh, um, you know the the uh, benchmarks that it's up against, and and I think you know relative to the S and P, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Com and then compared to the fact that we as trend followers, we, we we do have evidence that although we are not selling ourselves as a hedge to, uh, or we shouldn't sell ourselves as a hedge to equities. Uh, historically, we've certainly demonstrated the ability to make money when equities go down, um, but we've also been able to demonstrate that we make money over time. So it's not an insurance that really ends up costing you money. On the contrary, um, 
Yet sometimes people just still prefer and say, well, you know, I still think it's a better idea for me just to to buy puts. And so it's hard to understand sometimes the logic uh, in with these decisions. I think the best insurance that I've come across in the markets is my initial stop loss. That is the most valuable insurance to me. I know, you know, I put a position on and I know that, you know, if it doesn't work out the way I want it to work out, then, you know, I'll be getting out relatively quickly. I'll take the small loss before it becomes a devastatingly large loss. That is my initial insurance. And I will never put a position on without that. So it's always insured. And every once in a while, it just starts to run the way that I want it to run. And, you know, it pays for, for the losses and then some. So this to me is the insurance. Of course, it's, you know, always tough to to be in those continued and long, deep drawdowns and kind of like, you know, when you think about, well, I've paid all the insurance all that time and, you know, it brought me to where I am now, which is in that drawdown. So I'm going to continue to do that. It's exactly what you have to continue to do, right? It's exactly what you need to do at that point in time is to continue to put the positions on, to still be with that mind that allows you to follow your system, put the position on and pay the insurance again um, if you want to come out of that drawdown. That's the key. Keep doing the same thing over and over. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, not doing the same thing over and over, not being 100% disciplined creeps into your your approach, your systems, your... Um, in, in a sort of a, this is, this time it's different way. This time it's different because rates are so low, I won't buy the breakout. This sort of thinking can creep in and you make it a rule. Oh my God. Well, if it's a rule, who can argue with that? Well, I'll argue with it because even if this is what the modern CTA faces, uh, if you just do it discretionary, like I used to do in 1984, you know, just don't not going to do the trade. But now that it's all written in code and we have all these rules, it's rules-based investing. Well, there you go. Who's going to argue with that? Well, if it's a bad rule, if it's a rule that prevents you from buying the upside breakout because you have a filter that filters you out of a big trend, that's a bad rule. So it's not about rules necessarily. It's about having the right rules and not uh, trying to be so fine-tuned. You know, if I use this rule, my win percentage will go from 40% to 41%. And historically, looking at the bonds, it's been a positive rule. Bad, bad, bad. Oh, those are such bad statements. <laughs> you know, it's, don't look at just the bonds. Look at how and, and, and uh, don't focus on your win rate going from 40% to 42%. Uh, focus on not missing these mega trends that have never happened before. Only because you kept buying the breakout, selling the breakout over and over and over again. <clears throat> it's so mandatory. <clears throat> if you don't do that, you won't know, you won't get any uh, the amount of profit from your system that you should. Yeah, and I think from an investor point of view, I mean, it goes back to this uh, point about you know trying to be too clever about. And making allocations to any strategy, including ours, uh, because certainly if you miss, you know, if you miss the first half of this year, uh, you know, if you miss the month of August or whatever it might be that looks uh, good so far, I mean, it has a huge uh, impact on performance. Uh, so making something you truly believe in a core allocation and, and, and doing nothing is doing something, right? I mean, just leave it there for as long as you possibly can, um, 
you know, that's also something that we uh, as humans can find difficult because we think we have to do something uh, to be, quote unquote, an active, you know, allocator. But no, I mean, you just leave it and um, and, and let time do its work. Um, so, uh, yeah, super important. What else did you find in um, in social media uh, this week, uh, Jerry? Otherwise, I've got a small article we can talk about. We've got questions, of course, uh, as well. We can dive into it's. Uh, okay, so let's end with this one. I like this one. It's just from Mark again, and he's uh, had, uh, listed a couple of quotes from uh, someone he liked, and I like these quotes as well. Uh, in God we trust, all others bring data. Without data, you're just another person with an opinion. If you cannot describe what you are doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Bring data. Bring your data, not your feelings. Uh, then I sort of ended it by saying, you know, uh, small amounts of data are, are just the same. They're just as bad as experience, hunches, feelings. So once again, I think it's you got to, can't just say I'm bringing data because everyone has data. You know, the last five times this happened, we just have so much data, so many trades, so many uh, over the, lots of years and lots of different markets, longs and shorts, that when you get away from this sort of transactional trend following that produces buys, sells, uh, you know, that's the kind of data you need. <clears throat> um, anecdotal data is still not going to help very much. Small sample size, I think, is the bane of all of our existence and we're kind of all susceptible to being drawn into it. Yeah, I mean, not much to argue there, yeah. Fully agreed, fully agreed on that one. Definitely, well, one of the articles that I um, uh, picked up this week was just a little bit about some of the flows that hedge funds, including managed futures that we belong to, had seen so far in uh, 2018 and so far in 2019 up until the end of uh, July. I think this comes from a report um, that was published this week and, and this article featured in the uh, Financial Times. And um, and it's quite extraordinary because, you know, in both years, uh, you know, there are you know, some strategies, um, you know, long-short equity probably takes the, the lead in terms of outflows net outflows but i mean managed futures is up there as well uh, along with uh, multi strategy uh, and this year also uh, global macro um, and to me it's kind of interesting i'm not so sure about long short equity i don't really know much about uh, that but i mean you think about certainly managed futures and global macro i mean i think it's the world we're we're kind of been in a world but i think we're getting into a world much more where where there are a lot of macro themes that is playing out in front of us. Um, so I find it interesting to see that uh, investors are, are kind of leaving uh, those kind of strategies uh, in favor of something like, um, uh, what's a, yeah, there's a, a mortgage-backed securities I saw had some net inflows this year. Um, but overall, I mean, I think most most of the money actually net net flowing out of hedge funds um, and into just you know replic cheap replicators and 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 passive uh, investing. Um, so it's interesting to to see some of these uh, some of these moves. I don't know what you see on on your side and the people you speak to, um, but it certainly seems to be a tough year to 
to raise um, assets for these kind of strategies? I mean, we just keep uh, adding to our list of possible reasons that uh, our strategy and is going to all make a big, huge comeback, and this is just another thing to add. You know, clients are probably the worst timers and doing the exact opposite. You know, from making a permanent allocation that you talked about to great strategies that add diversification and risk control without sacrificing profit. So once again, another good example. It's an article in Bloomberg. It's an article uh, in something else, and now it's uh, probably one of the best periods ever. Um, reducing their allocation so probably a good sign but we've been we are we've been keeping this list for a while so hopefully uh, this is the beginning as you said earlier that we're getting back to sort of more normal markets where the trends and not just not just long only stocks all right uh, let's jump into some of the questions the first one is um it's from george our friend george who helps us out and helps uh, everyone out really by making these wonderful minute markers and quotes that we get from each episode. So we appreciate George very much. Um, George wanted us to talk a little bit about this topic or issue that we sometimes refer to, and that is, when is, and I'm just paraphrasing uh, and uh, the, the, the issue, and the issue is really, um, we don't want to discourage people to become trend followers. We're here to help. We're here to um, share our experience and help people uh, move forward in that path. But we also have to, um, you know, be be honest and say that it's a tough space to be in, um, and not just from a you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes into uh, coming up with the right models and and testing and all of that stuff. Um, but also from the fact that it can be very hard to implement successfully if you don't have enough capital, because one of the key ingredients in trend following is diversification. So, um, so George kind of wanted us to talk about uh, this uh, issue, topic, um, whether it's better for investors uh, or you know smaller investors. Uh, up to what size and love to hear your thoughts about it when is it better to find a few managers um, and 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 invest with them when is it better to uh, pursue uh, you know the design and and the trying to get uh, a trend following portfolio up and running so I'll I'll send it over to you guys to begin with to uh, discuss this uh, issue that George uh, raised. By the way, thanks, George, for this. I think this is an excellent question. And um, we were exchanging thoughts on this uh, via email the past couple of days. And uh, I guess we all have some different opinions on that. I thought about it a bit. And so so here's my take on that. Um, I think you can run a trend following strategy with, you know, one to two million dollars in, in equity. I mean, it's definitely possible. It may be possible to do it with less. Now, this is kind of like against saying, you know, you need a fully diversified portfolio, 70, 80 markets, et cetera, et cetera, futures only, all of that type of stuff, right? Well, you know, if you say, you know, say you had a million dollars, you know, I think you can get an acceptable, acceptable level of diversification with 20, 25, 30 markets. There's... Nobody saying that you absolutely must trade more than 70 markets. You know, I'm saying it's 
better to trade 70 than 20, where you can trade a trend following system with 20 different markets or 25 different markets. And if you have a million dollars, then you, you know you may end up with relatively high margin to equity and therefore relatively high volatility. So you may be in for some you know volatile ride with your portfolio. But I think it's doable. It's it's not impossible to do right now. The more money you have, if you have two million, if you have three million, then the more diversified you can get and the more you can control that volatility. But there's another point that that I want to make on that. And, you know, there's there's CTAs out there that run systems with two million and and they're just doing fine. You know, they're they're running at 30, 35 vol. Um, and you know they're they're transparent about the way they trade and the markets they trade, and that it is a high, highly highly volatile system. Now the other thing I want to say is, if it, it really depends on what your what your objective here is, do you enjoy trading? Do you like putting orders in, following the markets, staying close to the markets, kind of like you know? being in the driving seat for your own system, being a part of this market and kind of like, you know, going head to head with guys out there. Is it making money um, with the best possible risk adjusted returns? What What is it? And there's, you know, sometimes, you know, say you have, you're at a certain point, you know, you're, you're of a younger age, say, and you have a bit of money and you want to make some really a a bigger change to your account. Say you had like, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand or something like that, right? I mean, how are you going to turn this amount of money into like generational wealth or whatever that, you know, it's a bad, but like a really bigger pile of money, 10 million, 20 million, whatever it is, right? 30 million that allows you to retire or 100 million, right? If you have 500,000 and you invest that in a CTA that makes an you know, average rate of return of 10% per year, then that's just never going to happen, right? Then you, you'll be compounding at, you know, 10% with your 500,000 portfolio for the next 30, 40 years, but it's never going to be life-changing in the way that, you know, maybe people dream about it. So I think there is a trade-off that I don't feel is discussed very often in, in trading, which is if you really want to shoot the lights out and you want to make a lot of money and if this is what your objective is then at some point you will probably have to take large risks you will need to take that large risk and just go for it now this may when i you know i say this now after our, i don't know 50th recording it may sound irresponsible but it may be a very responsible decision for you to do this but you have to be aware of the consequences right you, you have to go for it. You have to press the trades, put them on. There's going to be lots of volatility. There's a high chance that, you know, your account won't survive the right. But there's also a chance that you will get to your objective, which is creating a lot of money, earning a lot of money. And if you can, you know, do this, there's also a lot of luck involved, I guess. Then you can dial it down and, you know, kind of like trade in a more risk controlled way. But really, I mean, again, if, if you have less than a million dollars and you really want to make a lot of money in the markets, it's really with the only way I can see is with risk and volatility and you have to dial it up. And this, you know, I guess the younger you are, the sooner you do it, the better it is. But yeah, so th those are my two cents on that. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts.
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> that was great. I mean, it was fantastic. Um, I think that, uh, and so when you hear this, you know, and then you lose all your money, you've got to, you, you're going to say, oh, I, I didn't really hear if Moritz mentioned that part that I had a good chance of losing all my money. Well, he did mention it. So don't forget that part because that's the big part. You know, you're going to start small, you're going to make some uh, compromises and some choices to make a lot of money. I mean, it sounds like you should probably learn how to play blackjack. Maybe, maybe that's safer. I don't know. But I think the I did all of that and I did uh, make it, uh, I did survive. And, uh, but I think the one thing that's even harder now than it was a long time ago is uh, that would, that worked for me because shorter term exits were okay. That was when the shorter term exit strategies were were profitable, but now with we've all sort of <clears throat> told, we've all on record here is saying that we trade longer term and the markets are choppy. And if you get out at the two week low uh, to get out and take that profit, you may have to buy it back, and it may be uh, a third of the way up. You know, we got a long ways to go in some of these trends, <clears throat> and the bonds themselves have they hit a two week low or a three week low in the past year? Probably. So I think that really. But leverage has got to be key. You've got to really jack up the leverage. You've got to get lucky on your choices of markets, sit through the volatile drawdowns, try to figure out a way to protect your capital and not lose it all. Or when you do lose it all, you just get more capital and try again. But I really don't know how to get around this idea that in the long run, it's your, the odds are not in your favor of shorter-term strategies, which really help trying to... Uh, you know, turn $2,000 into millions. Yeah, I think a lot of good stuff from both of you there. Um, I actually had um, an email from a listener uh, this week kind of dealing with the same issue. Someone who's been doing it for a long time, he'll remain nameless, but uh, someone who's been doing this for a long time, done everything right, uh, really studied, followed mentors, uh, systematized, taking every single trade uh, according to 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 uh, to him, um, and has saw his account grow from thirty thousand to a million, I think at least, which is fantastic. I mean, wow, that's amazing. But in the last few years, that account has dropped again um, by you know sixty, seventy, eighty percent. So that's that's the hard part, I find. And so I completely agree with what Moritz said, that if you, if you want to, to really make a lot of money from being a trend follower, you know, without building a business and manage other people's money, I mean, you have to take quite large bets, but large bets also means big drawdowns. And, you know, yeah, you might uh, stumble up the courage and say, well, this is, this is okay, you know, I'm down 60 70%. But I believe in my system. I'll continue, and um, and that's fine. Uh, but I think if you want to make uh, a lot of money from this, you have to. I think you have to build a business around uh, your strategy, uh, so that you can manage more money uh, in the same strategy. And once you take that decision, you run into two problems. One, you're now competing with all the greatest trend followers out there that you can find. And two, one of the, I think one of the things that is really, really hard and completely underestimated about what we do is 
how difficult it is to grow a client base uh, within this uh, world. Um, and so I think you face some some really big challenges. And this is why, and this is my this is my personal opinion, that unless you have enough money and you really want to make a business out of it, um, I think that f- most of the time the best answer is to find a few really good trend followers, invest with them, uh, and enjoy life. Or have time to, more time to enjoy life. Uh, but it doesn't doesn't mean that you can't study trend following and, and because it allows you to ask better questions of the managers you invest with. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, really become, um, you know, very, very knowledgeable about it and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think the bar today um, is high. I think firms like the ones we represent and many of our peers are super professional, have evolved, built strong businesses from an infrastructure point of view to their research capabilities. And we've made a lot of mistakes, all of us, and we've learned from them, which is key. I think that's probably the only way to really evolve is to make mistakes. Uh, And that's hard to suddenly... You can't study mistakes and, well, you can study some, but you can't, you, it takes time. And um, so you have to, at least if you go down that path, uh, be in for it for the long for the long run, I would say. Uh, so I think that, 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 that the amount, back to George's initial question, I think the amount before you decide to go on your own rather than finding external managers who can do well for you, I think that the amount is a little bit higher than than what, uh, well, I know Moritz said that it can be done, and I agree with that. Of course, you can trade a trend-following portfolio with a couple of million dollars. Of course you can. Um, maybe it's stocks only. Maybe it's stocks and some ETFs. Uh, you're having fun. You're practicing. It's a diversion. It's like fantasy football. And then I have my Fidelity account with a few stocks that I trend-follow. I mean, I wouldn't want to discourage people from doing it, but I do think that uh, over the years when I've hi- you know tried to hire people or – or meet with people and say, okay, maybe you're not, uh, maybe, how about a, a position as, you know, in marketing or something else? No, no, no. I have to be a trader. I have to be a trader one of these days. I'm going to learn from you and be a trader and do research. It's like their golf game. Like, like it doesn't, you don't have to be good at golf. You just want to get out there and enjoy yourself. And no one can play golf for you. And you can't, can't kind of like have fun if someone is a better player is playing for you. But managing money and your assets is not golf. It's it's a big downside if you don't get it correct. And uh, so I think that you get confused. It's, but it, you know, trading is fun. We all want to do it, and we. Uh, I don't want to be on the record as kicking people out of our little club because regardless of how much money you have, you're going to have a good time. Just be careful, and uh, probably it's best for most people just to stick to their stock account where there is no leverage, and they can still enjoy the markets and the trends and. A podcast like this where they feel kind of like they're part of something you know so a good point there i mean on the etps the exchange traded products that's exactly right i mean you can buy them on margin it's possible to trade a diversified trend following strategy using etfs and stocks right i mean there's etfs on bonds there's etfs or etcs there's you know which are the ones on the commodities you can buy gold on margin, you know, and then it doesn't have to be all futures contracts. You can still buy the euro dollar futures contract because that doesn't cost a lot of initial margin to hold, right? Um, but you may not 
buy crude oil or sell crude oil futures and use an ETP instead um, um, with you know smaller size. So it, I, I think it's possible. And what Jerry just said is, I think, really important, which is the learning curve, right? You're doing this and it it gets you into the driver's seat. You're becoming responsible for that performance. You become responsible for your account and, and how you trade it. And I think the amount of knowledge that you will get from that by doing it yourself is is second to none. It's really valuable. And and one other point I wanted to make is that probably our listeners, Dave, uh, a lot of them have probably read the Market Wizard books, and you know there's you know the portraits of there of, of Edsay Coda and Michael Marcus and all those legends in there um, who reportedly turned thirty thousand dollars into a couple of you know tens or hundreds of millions. So you have those images you know, uh, you know, at the front of your mind saying like, well, you know, those guys, how did they do it? And, and I want to do the same thing. Well, like Jerry said, this time is different. It was different back then. Different types of strategies used to work. Um, I don't want to say it's been easier. I think that would be wrong. It's just the systems that worked were different. Today, you have to apply different tools. Maybe there is something very easy out there that we haven't discovered, which is easy today, uh, which didn't exist back then, which you could, you know, strategy that you could trade and turn $30,000 into 10 million or 80 million. But again, let me say this, it depends on what your life circumstances are and what I think your objectives are with this trading business. You know, do you have... Do you have a job? You have a family? You just, you know, want to, you know, have a great career at the employer you work for and you do, you know, trading as a kind of like more like an investor? Okay, yeah, allocate to a bunch of CTAs, allocate, you know, across different strategies, build a diversified portfolio and just compound the money, compound your savings while you're, you know, keeping, you know, making great, a great career. And this may be a fantastic life for many people. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if your objective is to shoot the lights out and, you know, buy the $10 million property in the Bahamas, well, you either need to have to have a very good job or if you want to do it with trading, there's just no way. You have to take the risk and dial it up at some point and take your shot at that. Good stuff, guys. Yeah. And very few wealthy people make money make their money by investing <clears throat> they they make their money in their business and then they start investing conservatively over the for their late, later years and uh, people in the investment business they don't make money risking their own capital at these high leverage rates they raise a lot of assets and then uh, they invest their money properly you know but there there has been a few people I just think luck plays a big role in it you know how many people and market wizards are as you described and then how many people uh, equally nice and smart just never made it to market wizards because they didn't they didn't have that luck i wouldn't discount the luck thing so i try to say oh well if you can find a system that's kind of shorter term using leverage you know but i think maybe luck plays as big a role as anything well, you know, there's one thing to look forward to. Jack Schwager is a friend of mine. Probably you guys know him too, but he's going to write another book on the undiscovered, unknown market wizards. Um, he's got this business called fundseater.com onto which you can upload your performance data. So he's currently 
So if, if people are listening and they're trading and they have a great track record, he's currently looking for trading track records live, audited trading track records with, you know, outstanding risk adjusted returns, um, not by hedge funds, not by brand name hedge funds, but from unknown, undiscovered guys, right? So if you have a great trading strategy that has produced a lot of money. So maybe there are those guys out there that have turned 30,000 into 10 million, right? I mean, they're not putting that into the newspaper for us to read. But maybe we will find and read about those people in the next Market Wizards book. And I'm actually looking forward to that because I I think when I, you know, what I said earlier, it's back then, it probably hasn't been easier. I mean, I haven't been around. There probably are strategies today that can be traded in a way to turn 30,000 into 10 million. It's just that the three of us don't know about them. Yes, well, with all that discouragement, if there still are people who want to, uh, you know, make it, um, we still have two or three spots left on our live event in New York. So I don't want to uh, discourage everyone there. And I actually hope that... Uh, Neither do I. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I actually hope that you're going to take us up and and, 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 uh, and, and reach out and, and make sure you become uh, part of this little group. I think it's going to be um, lots of fun and hopefully by addressing uh, your specific challenges when it comes to trend following hopefully we can uh, help you uh, avoid a lot of the mistakes we've made but also more importantly really um, create some breakthroughs for for you in your own uh, trading but thanks George for that question uh, we appreciate it um, the last two questions for today both comes from James James uh, who has sent us his questions before um, he, the first one is, um, could you cover what you all believe to be the main aspects of the strategy which are misunderstood and why? I'd also like to hear your answers to the question that investors ought to be asking. Um, who wants to jump into that one? Well... I don't mind uh, jumping into to some of this and we can make it a, a quite an open discussion. I think when it comes to questions that investors ought to be asking, I remember that when I started the podcast many years ago, this was one of the questions that I always asked my guests, you know, what, what uh, should investors be asking? Because a lot of the questions that investors ask, uh, at least back then, came from more or less the same due diligence questionnaires that people were adopting that format so you would get the same questions every time and it kind of became a little bit monotone and 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 and, and boring um but i do think that one question that doesn't get asked very much uh which i think is is a good one is an important one is to ask managers about the research that didn't pan out uh and um and and kind of the the kind of the graveyard of of their research process because i do think that we all we do learn things uh and there's obviously reasons why certain things doesn't you know imp get implemented in in our strategy but i think most investors tend to ask about the the few things that did make it into the portfolio instead of asking about the, the a lot more things that that uh, that didn't um make the cut and um, but it doesn't mean that it was wasn't valuable uh, in in my opinion, so I think that's something where you could 
dig a little bit deeper as an investor when you talk to a manager and 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 who knows i mean some of the things that didn't pan out at the time in terms of the research may come back uh later on and something that you maybe with someone joining you with a different set of eyes looking at the same issue might find a solution to so i think in that sense that's uh important uh as well um let me leave it there and and hear what you guys are thinking about these questions yeah i think the two most important things to me uh, that i would um, ask someone or try to uh, get into a potential client's head is um, just the idea that stocks are not superior and it's really risky to be long stocks only and that there's no uh reason and there's no compromise of adding all these other markets <clears throat> but if i'm talking to a systematic trader or trend following trader you know i think that there's the biggest the most important question is uh <clears throat> describe to me how you count your sample size and how, what is your sample size so i think nothing is more important than um uh, understanding uh the back test and how it kind of works since this is what you're going to do in the future. Uh, nothing is more important than understanding that you have a legitimate back test and it can't be legitimate unless it's, you know, the proper counting of the trades and the sample size. So I think that to me is by far and away the most important. What are your thoughts, Mark? To me, I mean, this has been a two part question, you know, what is misunderstood about the strategy Probably a million things, you know, crisis alpha, is there really crisis alpha or is there not? I mean, you know, let's let's keep that aside. But I think the, the more interesting question is, what would you ask the manager? What would you expect? And uh, to me, like when, when, I, when I speak to other um, CTAs or asset managers, I want to hear about their failures and how they came to where they are today and what roadblocks they had to overcome and how many of them and how many holes they had to kind of like you know crawl out of repeatedly and how painful that has been i have not yet met a trader that has just from the get-go uh been a superstar without without the scars of this business and i think those are the important ones that I want to hear of and, and about is like, you know, how painful has that been? Where have you kind of like tipped over and why? And how have you corrected that? And what have you learned from that? This is extremely important to me to hear. Uh, yeah, I wanted to comment on the research thing. I have a, a, big, a different take on that, uh, on the research. Um, and I would love to tell people of what I've, my failures uh, about research, because the failures are Anything other than trend following doesn't work. <laughs> so I've even you know, told you about some things we looked into that were kind of dubious, like let's say take, taking profits or volatility resizing, which are going to violate uh, sample size. And so they'd come, the research people would come back to me and say, yeah, it's kind of bogus to take a profit after you know, a certain ATR move or to fall target but if you just waited to like one day low one week lower of the price or have it crossed the 10 day moving average it becomes a lot better so bad ideas uh you throw <clears throat> you throw trend following on top of it it makes it a little bit better and then another thing is that all of the trend following systems make about the same amount of money so we didn't choose all of them 
we chose kind of a a group in, in you know that were all medium to long term but uh so the failures were the things that we were things that were not trend following and then all the trend following stuff worked really well we just had to make some choices on which ones to take so i'm always uh, laugh and giggle when I hear about um, what about all the research that didn't work out? Well, it was all the things that I that I knew better not to do because it wasn't based in trend following. Yeah, I um, I want to comment just on two more things on on these topics. One is um, um, I think in terms of the biggest misunderstanding that that I can think of right now this minute is probably the this this thing about people believing that volatility equals risk. Uh, I think that that's something that um, I think most people really truly believe in, um, but it's just not the case, uh, and there's a lot of evidence uh, to suggest that. And I think again, I, I go back to this uh, wonderful uh, phrase uh, that uh, David Drews uh, came up with, uh, where he basically found that the most robust systems uh, are the most volatile. Um, and I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was—I think—it's quite uh, interesting. Um, but I also want to just quickly comment on a personal note: um, the, what uh, Moritz said, because I—I I, I think that the, the point about the scars of a manager is truly important, and I have a really personal uh, example in my family of that. Since my son a few years ago had a cardiac arrest, uh, so essentially died for a few minutes. Um, but uh, he survived. But of course, every time he he's take his T-shirts off, you see the scar, right? Um, but I think what is always important to tell someone like that, but also to uh, when we correlate it back to, to managers, is that the scar is nothing to be embarrassed about because the scar shows you that you survived. And that's what it's all about. And in our business, we we're sometimes maybe a little bit embarrassed to talk about the fifty percent drawdown we had fifteen years ago. But no, we shouldn't. I mean, it, that's that it's it's a good thing that we can show it. But and 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 that we're still here. So I like that analogy that Morch uh, brought up. And personally, I think my unfortunately my biggest scars were just when I didn't follow the systems. So I agree that the fifty percent drawdown, or the I lost, you know, I lost seven percent in one day back in the nineties because of the British election, and I probably made money that month. As bad as I felt that particular day at three or four o'clock in the morning, Eastern time, I had to, you know, do those trades, and uh, that scar is not nearly as bad. I'm sure clients think that's like the worst scar ever. You know, the worst one ever is the ones where I overthought missed the trade, you didn't stay disciplined. So I think in, in a unique way, that's, I think, uh, scars we should be ashamed of and that uh, they remind us uh, no one can predict what these markets are going to do and your system is your best idea. I agree with that. It's more like the minor scars, like you, you say, Jerry, the, the same is true for me, like not doing the trades that you're supposed to do or trying to outsmart the system, putting positions on that have no purpose in the portfolio because you're all over your head and you think you know something better than anybody else and you put a position on that has no place in your portfolio because of what whatever reason you just believe it's going to work but it doesn't then work and it loses you money and that is like a mini scar it doesn't lose you you know the seven or ten percent you know maybe it loses you one percent or something like that but still stupid trade right 
And I think it's, you know, we've all done that. And, you know, in the earlier days, there has been much, much more of that bad behavior because nobody, I think, starts out as a 100% systematic trader. I think most people come to the markets in kind of like an active alpha oriented, I'm just going to outsmart other people out there type of way before, I mean, for the three of us, it turned into long-term trend following. There are other branches of, of our business. They go different directions, but I think they all start with, or most of them start in a not 100% disciplined, systematic way. And, and that gives you the scars. Now, the most important thing about those mini scars is, is that you learn from the experience and you take the right conclusions from it. So you do the bad trade, you do the stupid trade, you lose money. Okay, so something has to now happen and click in your, pra- in your brain that you're not going to do it over and over and over again, right? You're very likely you're going to do it a second time, a third time, right? Because kind of like, you know, it hasn't, hasn't worked out once, sample size of one, do it again, right? But over time, those scars, they will become so many that you will hopefully start to realize, well, I should not be doing that. I should be more disciplined, follow the system and not try to do anything except. I do think though that trend following is more susceptible than any other strategy to create a that the lack when the lack of discipline or the lack of doing the trade is going to be way more than a few percent it's massive because we're just going to have this tendency to screw up the big trade and the bond trade you know this is not just a couple percent if you didn't do the bonds if you had the filter that overrides the bonds or if you get out too quickly on a big trend uh so i do think because we're relying upon these outliers you've got to handle these things perfectly you know uh, it, in the same way that you handle all the other trades that, oh, it's easy, you know, the current trades we have on, you know, they're easy to handle when they're small winners or small losers. It's like you just get nervous and you get, you know, you get, uh, you want to get out quick, quicker or you want to maybe not do the trade in the same way because of, of all the pressure and what you're hearing. But I, I do think trend following, you're going to have some, if you if you don't follow the systems, you're going to probably not follow them in those mega trades where you need to put it on and sit back and leave it alone until the exit criteria gets hit. And then I, I do uh, also love that Drew's quote. And um, I remember it a little bit differently in that uh, I, and I don't, I've never really understood exactly what he meant, but I think it was along the lines of the uh, big drawdowns will signify that your systems are very robust. And I tried over the years to th- understand what the heck this thing means. And I come to my own conclusion that what he is, I think, saying is um, because you have a system that had the big drawdowns, it was evidence that you were only doing the system trades. You didn't interject. You didn't have an overlay. You didn't classify it as money management. uh, And so you overrode the system to vol target or to reduce the position. No, you just left it alone. And uh, yeah, if you're, when you're following your system, you're going to have big uh, drawdowns because the exits were not optimized. And they, uh, the, the longer-term stuff works over time, but it uh, on any individual trade, it kind of sucks. And, uh, and so I thought, uh, I think that's what it means. That's what it means to me. And, and I, I really like that whole idea that 
if you're if you're protecting capital apart from your normal system entries and exits, yeah, you won't have the drawdowns, but you won't have the reliable profits either. Yeah, and I think you can go further thinking about that um, that piece uh, uh, that David uh, wrote. I think that uh, I think the whole point was actually that you will have these big drawdowns because you didn't optimize your system in general. I mean, you weren't trying to find the best system. Like we often say, good enough is good enough. Don't try to overthink it and be too clever. So you're going to have big drawdowns. You're going to have lots of volatility, but it's actually a good sign because it means that you know it's going to have more robustness over time. So I think that's exactly right. Now I'm going to quickly jump to the last two questions. Um, uh, also from James, just uh, a few comments, if you uh, if you would. Um, one of them is just whether or not you look at volume um, for when you get the breakouts, or is it just price buying the high? Is that good enough, or do you want it to be supported by volume? And the other question is uh, to do with correlation, whether or not uh, there are any uh, rules on your side uh, that suggest that you should be uh reducing things or exiting um if there is a pickup in correlation um he says at the end there must typically be quite a lot of noise which may give false signals uh etc etc so just those kind of quick comments i see you are ready to go on that uh, moritz Good question and quick answers. So I do look at volume, but not at the time of the breakout. I look at volume to uh, um, determine whether markets that I trade are liquid enough for me to trade them. Um, and that really is the only thing. So I'm not looking at a volume-based pattern to take trades or exit trades. And correlations, I do monitor correlations, but they are not um, an active ingredient in my trading system so if i have two positions on and they used to be uncorrelated but they come become more correlated during the time of the trade then that is no, not going to impact my position size yes um, before you do that when you set up the portfolio are all the markets have sufficient liquidity and then take into consideration uh, the correlations uh, the best you can knowing they're going to kind of ebb and flow and setting up your portfolio weightings. So uh, I'm going to trade uh, cotton, coffee, cocoa, sugar with one unit each, but not crude hitting on unleaded with one unit each because they're kind of very correlated. So a third of a unit each, 50, 50% unit each. Yeah, it's something like that. I know there's disagreement on that, but um, yeah, some of these markets are 90% correlated almost all the time, and then they're not. So what are you going to do? It's, it's a tough choice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, those are very valid points. On our side, uh, we probably do it a little bit differently because we do look at correlations uh, on an ongoing basis, more on a portfolio risk uh, management level. Um, but uh, I think to keep things simple, I think uh, what Jerry and Moritz said is is perfectly uh, perfectly valid. Now let me quickly run through uh, performance so far this month, this year, uh, and then if you can think of anything else you want to bring up, uh, let's do that before we close. Uh, beta fifty index. I think yes. So this, as usual, this is the numbers as of Thursday evening. So. I think yesterday, Friday, was probably a mixed to slightly positive day uh, for most managers. It really depends, again, whether you 
you know, your positions on some of the bigger sectors right now. But anyways, um, Beta 50 index up 1.97 for the month, up 10.64 for the year. Sockgen CTA index up 1.44 for the month, up 10.07 for the year. The trend index, uh, which is more uh, aligned to our style, up 3.5 for the month and up 16.58 for the year. Uh, Sockgen short-term traders index up about 1.07%, up 2.3% for the year. And the bridge alternatives index up 4.68 for the month and up 14.26 for the year. Um, any final thoughts as we slowly start to wrap up our conversation um, this week? I enjoyed it. I think it was a good session. We had some good talks on uh, how much money you need to trade and uh, what your objectives are in trading. But um, let me conclude with happy trading wherever you are. Enjoy the summer. Yeah, fun. I'll keep those questions coming there. I want to stay in touch with what everyone's thinking and help as much as we can. Absolutely. So remember, if you want our help live in New York, small setting, uh, October 26, 27, uh, do go to uh, toptradersonplug.com forward slash live uh, or send us an email. Uh, there's still uh, two or three spots left. We would love to uh, have you all there. Um, and um, if you want to give something back to the podcast, so to speak, uh, you know, all we ask for is, is that you share it with your friends, like-minded, uh, hopefully. Uh, and, you know, one share would be great. So uh, with that said, from Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. We are grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.